I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm talking with David and Charles Nichols. So David and Charles are both psychedelic scientists. Uh, David is also the father of Charles Nichols. Uh, David was a chemist at Purdue University for many, many years, and he's retired now, and he's one of the gurus of psychedelic science. He's one of the people who's been doing it longest. In fact, he synthesized the MDMA that MAPS and Rick Doblin used for their initial MDMA-assisted psychotherapy trials. He synthesized the DMT that Rick Strassman used in his original DMT experiments in humans in the 1990s. And we talked about some of that history there. Uh, Charles is still an active scientist in Louisiana. His lab studies how psychedelics work. Uh, they study the anti-inflammatory effects that certain psychedelics have. And we discussed a lot of what he's doing and working on today around inflammation and psychedelics. Uh, and we just talked about psychedelic science and psychedelic medicine, generally speaking, um, the past, present, and future of this whole area. You know, what it was like in the early days when David was just starting out and into the 80s and 90s when these things were still not widely researched and discussed, uh, you know, back in the Reagan era, uh, we talked about some of the latest in psychedelic science, what we're learning about serotonin and inflammation, what we're learning about neuroplasticity and behavior, um, how different drugs work through uh, somewhat different mechanisms. For example, we talked about DMT versus 5-methoxy-DMT and how they interact with some of the same receptors, but also uh, they interact with other receptors in different ways, and that can account for the different effects that they have. Uh, uh, we talked about uh, all sorts of stuff related to psychedelics. So if you're interested in psychedelic science and psychedelic therapy, generally speaking, there was a lot of interesting stuff here, including both on the science side and on the history side. And as always, I want to remind everyone that I have a Substack, mindandmatter.substack.com. You'll find there my long-form science writing, all of the podcast content in audio and video format, as well as access to my free weekly newsletter and the ability to support the podcast as a paid subscriber. As many of you probably don't know, I recently uh, left my uh, full-time day job in the private sector, and I'm now pursuing the podcast and this content full-time. And so any support you can give me, whether that's sharing your favorite episode with friends, subscribing to the free weekly newsletter, leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or just following along and, uh, and listening. I appreciate all of those ways of supporting me. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. 
And with that, here's my conversation with David and Charles Nichols. got a father-son duo here uh and it's it's kind of a, a unique situation so uh when i went to graduate school in 1969 my phd project was on what are called psychotomimetics which are now called psychedelics um i was lucky i had an nda fellowship to study them um i spent uh I actually finished my PhD in about actually the experimental work in about three, three and a half years, faster than most people did, because I had worked in industry for five and a half years before that. So graduate school for me was like a vacation. Mm. Of course, a lot of people wouldn't think that going from undergrad to graduate school, they go, oh, my God, graduate school. But I had worked five and a half years in industry and, and gone to night school to finish my BS at night at the same time. So I was burning the candle at both ends. Went to graduate school and the research for me was like a vacation. Um, and so in 1970, the Controlled Substance Act was passed. I thought, well, I'm not going to be able to do this anymore, but at least I enjoyed my Ph.D. work. But then I went to Purdue University in 1974 and um, got an appointment there and was able to continue doing work on these compounds. I actually got a grant from the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which I was funded for 28 years and renewed for the, the final year, 29th year, just studying the medicinal chemistry and pharmacology of psychedelics, basically. That was, I had another area, but uh, this that's the one that's m- most memorable for me. And uh, published a lot of papers, wrote book chapters, reviews, all the academic stuff, trained 40-some graduate students and 20-some postdoctoral fellows and visiting scholars. And um, started the Hefter Research Institute in 1993 because nobody was doing clinical work on psychedelics. And uh, so I got together with some like-minded friends, and we started the Hefter Institute, raised money from philanthropists. It was quite difficult because once you have a lot of money, apparently you like to hold on to it. You don't give it away very easily. Uh, we did raise about $10 million, and uh, the Hefter Institute funded the seminal studies, really, that really got people looking at psychedelics again. Um, we funded uh, Charlie Grove at UCLA. We funded... Uh, Johns Hopkins studies with Roland Griffith. We fund uh, Steve Ross at New York University. And that really, I think those papers were the, the impetus for people to realize you actually could do this work again. Because mm-hmm. prior to that time, no one got in the field because you couldn't get a grant. And it's still almost impossible to get a grant to study these substances, although a couple of grants have been awarded now recently. But uh, you couldn't get money to fund these for years. And if you were an academic, Without a grant, then you'd lose your job after five years if you couldn't get a grant. So I was in the right place at the right time, worked my ass off, and uh, was lucky, got a lot of luck, and was able to kind of push this field forward. I made the MDMA for uh, for uh, MAPS, phase one and two studies. Mm. Made, made the DMT for uh, Rick Strassman's study. Made the psilocybin for the Johns Hopkins studies. So um, I was encouraging people to to work in this field Pretty much before almost anybody else was, and proven that it could be done. Yeah, so, so you you've truly been the the man behind the curtain. You you actually made the MDMA for for Rick Doblin's map studies and and the other <clears> ones <throat> that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. Nobody else would do it, and uh, Rick Doblin had gone. He, he'd he'd set up maps, and he was an ideal idealistic young kid. I met him when he was still an undergrad at New College, and uh, he wanted to make MDMA into a drug because he'd been so impressed by its effects. And then he started checking with companies to make it for, he, he needed to get preclinical toxicology done. He needed some pure material and nobody would touch it because it was, you know, 
or they would touch it, but not for the kind of money he had. Mm-hmm. And so I did that. And then, um, then it was easy to make the DMT for Rick Strassman. And I got FDA, we got FDA approval to do that. And then the psilocybin, I started doing the synthetic psilocybin. Um, the first batch was used for um, Hopkins 2006 studies in normal volunteers. And then I made a great big batch for the clinical studies. So that's, and then I retired from Purdue in 2012. At Purdue, I was eventually a distinguished professor of medicinal chemistry and molecular pharmacology and also a named professor of uh, pharmacology. So, um, and uh, who's the other guy with us right now? When, when did he come out of the scene? <laughs> well, well I'm the one person that he encouraged not to get into the field of psychedelics. Yeah, I tried to discourage him. I said it would kill your academic career, but he didn't listen to me. No, no, I, I came along sometime uh, in the story when he was getting his PhD um, at the University of Well, he came along before while well, he was working at the companies. Uh, before he went to Iowa. So I remember being a little kid, five, six years old and married student housing. Um, occasionally my father would take me into the lab. It was this ooh, big chemistry lab, but most of the time it was uh, just being a, a kid playing around in Iowa. Um, then when he moved to Purdue, um, grew up in West Lafayette, Indiana, and my mother was uh, getting her PhD in pharmacology at the time. My father was a medicinal chemist getting into pharmacology. So the, a lot of the conversations around the house were very scientifically oriented about drugs and animals. And I would go in and see my mom operate on, on rats doing her study. And uh, my dad was uh, first, I think he had cats as a research animal. And yes. I remember going in and seeing some of the cats, and then he switched over to rats after a while. So I kind of grew up in and around the scientific environment and in a laboratory and was really fascinated by the chemistry and the biology. So I went to Purdue as a chemistry student. And after a couple of years, especially after PCHEM, decided that chemistry was not for me. Um, wanted to do something a little bit more interesting. So I switched to biology. And around that time is when the PCR machine was developed and invented and Purdue had just mm. gotten their first PCR machine. And I was fascinated by molecular biology. And when is this? Is this the 1980s? Yeah. About 19, this was around 1987. And <laughs> uh, I joined uh, a lab to do my undergraduate research in bacterial genetics and thought it was just, just really fascinating. So any thoughts of, pharmacology or drugs or anything like that were were just not in existence. I didn't wasn't interested in it. I, I wanted to be a gene jockey, as my dad called it at the time. Um, so I ended up going to graduate school at Carnegie Mellon University starting in the fall of 1990. And uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but something having to do with with genetics. And I ended up joining a fruit fly developmental neurogenetics laboratory and studied fruit fly eye development uh, for my PhD dissertation. But then after several years of working with fruit flies, decided I didn't want to see a fruit fly again. Um, and then I, I said, I want to do something more mammalian based. And through a very crazy circumstances, um, ended up doing my postdoc in the laboratory of Elaine Sanders Bush, who uh, was 
um, unbeknownst to me, one of the leaders, the pioneers of the field of serotonin two receptor research. Mm. At the time, I just thought, oh, my my father had mentioned her a couple times that she was a good uh, a good colleague and serotonin. Oh, that's that's in the mammalian brain that could be interesting. And she proposed to me uh, a project looking at the effects of LSD on gene expression in the brain. Oh, wow, that's perfect. It's kind of combined my love of genetics and my family history of psychedelics. And um, I, I had been working there for a year or, or not, about a month. And she comes out of her office waving my CV and she's pointing at it and she says, I just was looking at your CV again and noticed that you, you did your undergrad at Purdue. And then she asked me if I knew Dave Nichols. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's that's my father. And from, from then on in, and around the lab, she called me Dave. But <laughs> uh, I got into the field, I think, in this uh, roundabout way. I found my own way to it. Um, so it wasn't – a lot of people assume I got into the field because of who my father is. But that really wasn't the case at all. And while at Vanderbilt, I started – I got this, this – um, strike of inspiration one day that you can use fruit flies for pharmacology experiments. And I asked if we could give some psychedelics to some fruit flies. I got some fruit flies from down the hall. So I had started giving drugs to fruit flies as well as doing the gene studies in, in the rats. Um, so it was time for me to go on the academic trail and find a job. And my father counseled me strongly against it. He said, nobody gives a rat's ass about psychedelics. You know, it's going to destroy your career. You're not going to be able to get grants. Um, so fortunately, I didn't listen to that advice, um, being the stubborn son, I guess, that I sometimes can be. Uh, and, 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 and when was this? Is this in the 90s now? This was in uh, 96, 97 when I started in the Lane's lab. And I started looking for a faculty position around 2003 and got my first and so far only faculty position here at LSU Health Sciences Center in New Orleans in uh, the start of the fall of 2004, about a year before Katrina. So I've been here this fall 20 years. And that whole time studying serotonin 2 receptor pharmacology, um, cell culture and animal models, looking at gene expression, epigenetic effects, behavioral pharmacology, um, and somewhere along the way, um, psychedelics became an accepted uh, potential therapy, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like from when you were, you know, your earliest memories, you were a little kid, you were, you were in the lab and mom and dad were talking about science. So you were sort of always embedded in that kind of environment. Yeah. When did, how, when were you, uh, how old were you when you first sort of understood like what psychedelics were and, and <laughs> uh, what, what dad was doing with a little bit more specificity? Well, when he got his job at Purdue and when I was younger, he, I knew he was a chemist and I knew he was working with cats and then rats. And the way that he explained things is that he was working with chemicals that make people dream. Mm. So it was like, I thought, oh, he's figuring out how people dream. Um, and then course this was high uh, reagan era with just say no but we never really had any uh of those discussions around our liberal household but things sort of i guess grew organically 
as I grew older, and I think it was probably around when I was a senior in high school, figured out what dad was doing. But uh, um, there was no internet back then. Uh, so it was really kind of hard to do what, what my daughter does. You know, she, since she was little, she likes typing into Google and, oh, look, there's lots of pictures of dad and grandpa on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, interesting. Um, and so eventually you start your own lab and what, um, just give people a brief overview. What, what is your lab study and, and what do you guys work on? So when I started my lab, it was, um, essentially just all neuroscience. It was studying the receptor pharmacology and drug receptor interactions of 5-HT2A agonists and psychedelics and how they affect behaviors. And then, um, Still continuing on with my rat and fly models, using them to understand sort of the circuitry and gene expression response to psychedelics. And it was after Hurricane Katrina, um, about a couple years, year and a half after that, we got back into the lab that we serendipitously discovered the potent anti-inflammatory effects of psychedelics. Uh, so really went ahead full steam with that side of things. And in my laboratory today, I think there's about a third of it is devoted to the anti-inflammatory effects of psychedelics and uh, peripheral inflammatory models. A third is devoted to sort of hardcore receptor pharmacology, drug receptor interactions. Um, and a third of it is continuing on with the behavioral uh, genetic side in rodent models and fly models. Interesting. Uh, David, do you, do you remember those discussions with Charles when you, when he was a little boy where you told him uh, you, you looked at things that made people dream? I actually don't have any memory of that. I can remember <laughs> telling him when he became an academic, I remember telling him don't study LSD. Nobody cares about LSD. Yeah. That's probably but we always had science. I mean, he went in high school. He entered science fair, what, two two different years? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so he was learning to think like a scientist. And, of course, I wasn't in sports, and so he didn't do sports. And so really the probably more his hobby was reading and, sci and, and thinking about scientific things. Uh, and my high school had a really good um, chemistry program. Interesting. Um, so, you know, you've both been on the podcast before. A lot of people listening, I think, will have some some background mm -hmm. in this. Um, so we'll we'll assume some background knowledge for people um, around psychedelics and some of the basics there. I don't want to, uh, you know, tread over ground that, that we've gone over in previous episodes too much. Um, but obviously, when we talk about psychedelics, you know, everyone talks about the five HT two A receptor and that being the main receptor responsible for the the psycho the psych psychedelic effects that they have. There's two interesting branches I want to talk about that, that you guys know some things about that are interesting. One is sort of non-psychedelic effects of some of these compounds that come through uh, the 5-HD2A receptor, such as 5-HD2A uh, receptors that are found outside the brain and other parts of the body and other tissues. And then the other side that I think is interesting is you know other receptor systems that some of these compounds engage with. Um, and so maybe starting with the first one, 
you know, sort of, uh, I guess the topic is going to be non-psychedelic effects that psychedelics can have through the 5-HT2A receptor. Uh, that gets right into some of what you've been working on, Charles, uh, to do with like anti-inflammatory effects and things like that. So mm-hmm. c- can you give us like a basic sense of, of what's going on there? How widespread is the 5-HT2A receptor outside the brain? Yeah, the, the 5-HT2A receptor is really, it's, I think it's the most widely expressed serotonin receptor um, throughout the body. It's It's been on every tissue that we've looked at so far um, from fat cells, skin cells, muscle, endothelial, immune cells, T cells, macrophages. Uh, it's, it's expressed at um, not as high levels as in the brain, but because they're G protein coupled receptors and they're an amplification system, they don't have to be expressed very highly to really have a profound effect on function. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the potency of the effect we discovered uh, for some of the drugs that we're looking at are literally orders of magnitude below what the threshold amount would be uh, in some of these animal models that we've looked at. So we think that if the the potency is so high that the the amounts of drug some of these drugs that people would need to take could would be essentially microdosing. I see. So, so you're saying that um, they can have some of these peripheral effects on inflammation at doses that will not give you a psychedelic effect. Right. Right. And and what what compounds are we talking about here? Are these you know things like LSD, psilocybin, the the most famous psychedelics, or are these other compounds? Um, it's a it's a fairly interesting story behind that. Is we first started with DOI which is um, a phenethylamine psychedelic somewhat related to mescaline in its structure. And uh, we did a lot of work with that, uh, but then we wanted to look to see if other psychedelics had the same effect or if it was specific for that drug. So we did a comprehensive study where we looked at 25 different psychedelics across the, all the major uh, pharmacophores a few years ago and published on that. And what we found were that um, some really potent psychedelics like LSD are not very good anti-inflammatories. They have anti-inflammatory effects, but they're not as potent as, as DOI. Right. I see. This is, this is from that study. Yeah. So, I saw you, I saw you give this talk last year. So I had this, I had this ready to go. Um, but yeah, this, this is, a, this is a really interesting slide. There's a lot here. Yeah. So to break it down, that dash line in the middle kind of represents the baseline inflammation level um, within our asthma model that um, in in an animal that we make allergic to an allergen and it has difficulty breathing, it has pulmonary inflammation and sort of the overall measure we use for that is, is PEN-H. So the higher the number of PEN-H, the more inflammation in the lung, the lower, the less. And so that dotted line is represents the average asthmatic rat and what the inflammation would be. Mm. And so we found several drugs uh, that were completely fully efficacious in blocking inflammation in this, this model. Uh, the, for example, 2CI, 2CB, uh, 4-hydroxy-DIPT, RDOI was the drug that we have used the most because it's the most selective for the 5-HT2 receptors, but also you can see psilocybin or, or the active drug psilocin is, is in there. Hmm. Yeah. So, so you have some of these drugs are re- have really good efficacy mm-hmm. and some of them don't. And uh, I'm sorry, sorry if I missed this. Did you say this effect is coming through 
two A specifically? Yep. Okay. When we when we test in a two A receptor knockout mouse, we have absolutely no no effect. Hmm. So so then so then the, I guess the next question here is. Some of these drugs, it's these drugs are acting through two A. Some of them do a really good job at reducing inflammation mm-hmm. or preventing inflammation. Um, but some of them, like LSD, don't do as good a job. Some of some of these right. other ones over here don't do a very good job at all. But the, don't they all act through the two A receptor in kind of a similar way? They do. They do. Um, so that's one of the projects in my laboratory focusing on receptor pharmacology is to try to figure out why some psychedelics are anti-inflammatory and others aren't. And a, a really good example of this is if you compare, uh, for example, psilocin to DMT. Mm, the yep. only difference structurally between those two compounds is that hydroxy at the four position, that that OH at the top of that, of that ring. Um, and similar uh, for the 4-hydroxy-DIPT that's on here, if you take that 4-hydroxy off, DIPT, which I don't think is on this graph here, DIPT also completely loses its anti-inflammatory efficacy. And the the study that we just published about two weeks ago, we're comparing DOI to a drug called DOTFM, which is also very similar. They're both good, strong agonists at the 5-HT2A receptor. They both produce a behavioral response. Uh, very potently, but DOTFM has no anti-inflammatory efficacy across several models that we've looked at. So there's something about how these different psychedelics are engaging the amino acids in the orthosteric binding pocket of the receptor that put it in a particular state that recruits anti-inflammatory pathways. Mm. That's, so that's I, one of the one of the big things that we're trying to solve in my lab. And, and I guess one of the key things here for people to understand is probably that just because, so if two drugs bind to the same receptor, that does not mean they're going to have the same effect. You can sort of, you can essentially turn on the receptor in, in different ways that have very distinct effects. Right, right. And that's a concept called functional selectivity that my father was one of the early pioneers of, that you could get different responses from a receptor from different drugs. Mm. David, what, what were like some of the early earliest examples of that that were discovered? What do you mean? Functional selectivity? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, the concept really goes back probably to the 90s. People, and there were many ph- pharmacologists who didn't believe it. Um, there was the idea that a receptor just turned on and just turned off like a like a light switch. Mm-hmm. And um, we had done some, we did some early studies showing that uh, the serotonin 2A receptor also could lead to um, changes in other inter- interest, intracellular signaling molecules, depending upon the molecule. So it's in, in addition to being called functional selectivity, is also called ligand bias or ligand-directed bias, which was a concept that when the ligand binds to the receptor, it produces a, a conformational state or shape of the receptor that leads to, to a difference in the interior part of the receptor that then couples to different signaling molecules. So that's been fleshed out over the past 30 years, I guess. Uh, and that concept now is pretty widely accepted. So the issue is nobody completely understands all the elements that determine what a particular, what signal will be produced. So mm-hmm. the major signaling pathways people look at are something called arrestin signaling and G-protein signaling. But there are other types of signals that are not as well fleshed out. And we think with respect to the anti-inflammatories, there's a signal that no one has really found yet, that, which is one of the things that, that Chuck's lab is looking for to figure out 
what that is. But they must they must be subtle differences in the shapes of these receptors that allow them to couple differentially to regulators regulatory molecules within the cell. Mm-hmm. I see. So so you know you can have one receptor like five HG two A. It could actually be hooked up to different protein and information pathways in the cell and which one it's hooked up to or, or which drug binds to the outside can determine like which one of those uh, gets turned on. It's, right, it's not right. just one effect like a light switch, like you said. Right. So when, when the drug actually binds to the exterior portion of the receptor, the receptor is actually seven alpha helices packed together in a bundle. And so when it binds, there's a complementarity between the, the ligand and the receptor, the residues in the receptor. And so it'll orient the receptor in a certain way. With a di- different, well, LSD, for example, is a large tetracyclic molecule. It's four rigid uh, rings that are hooked together. And it sits down there. You can imagine it's pretty clunky. It the, forces the receptor to adapt itself to the LSD molecule because the LSD molecule is so rigid. But if you put a smaller molecule like mescaline in there where there's a lot of flexibility, now the receptor has the ability to adapt to different shapes and still accommodate the ligand. And so the shapes, those different shapes mm. and formations of the receptor determine what's able to bind on the interior within the cell of the receptor. Hmm. So, so you know, when we looked at that graph, Charles, you know, it was basically a graph showing us that different types of uh, 5-HG2 a receptor drugs have different levels in uh, of, of efficacy with respect to this inflammation effect. Some of them uh, could lead to much lower inflammation. Some of them none at all. Some of them somewhere in the middle. What about um, serotonin itself? What's the relationship between serotonin and inflammation at this receptor? Well, ser- serotonin uh, primarily is pro-inflammatory. So when there are sites of inflammation uh, in asthma and arthritis, um, diseases like that, there are high levels of serotonin. And the serotonin helps to cause um, immature T cells to mature, causes the recruitment of other inflammatory cells like eosinophils to the lung through 5-HT2A receptors. So it could be that the reason that 5-HT2A receptors are expressed so widely throughout the body is that that's one of the main mechanisms that serotonin uses to indicate inflammation activate the immune system. Hmm. And so you, you know, you've been studying these drugs in an asthma model. So you're looking at lung mm-hmm. tissue. Um, and I mean, that's a very interesting area. There's more to talk about there. Um, is, is 5-HE2A involved in inflammation within the brain itself? There is evidence that it is. Um, there is a, a significant percentage of patients that have major depressive disorder that have neuroinflammation. You can detect uh, elevated levels of inflammatory biomarkers in the serum and in the cells. Hmm. Well, that's a, you know, I'm thinking of an interesting, interesting question here now. Um, if you have major depression um, and you're saying that there can be this correlation with uh, neuroinflammation, mm-hmm. uh, you just told us that serotonin generally is pro-inflammatory but the first line medication people typically get for depression is an SSRI, which would elevate serotonin levels. So are SSRIs actually promoting inflammation? No, actually the opposite. Um, (laughs) There's been a um, a body of work looking at how activation of serotonin transporters can produce an anti-inflammatory effect through specific mechanisms. Uh, So that's, that's 
been studied for, I would say the last 15, 15 years or so. So that's, that's, that's an established pathway. Like if you have activation of the serotonin transporters, you, you have a um, effect primarily on IL-1 beta and, mm -hmm. and suppression of that. So that's, that's a different parallel pathway. I think what, what we're looking at is something that the, the drugs are binding to the 5-HT2A with such potency that um, it's really an active anti-inflammatory process that's overriding anything that serotonin itself could be doing. Mm -hmm. And so is it, um, I, I imagine it's, uh, you think it's plausible that, that some of these drugs or perhaps new drugs that, that you or others are designing, they could be uh, potent anti-inflammatories that either don't have psychoactive effects because uh, they're so potent, you can use a very, very low dose, or perhaps mm -hmm. because um, some of these don't actually cross the blood brain, blood brain barrier. Right, right. So it could conceivably be if it doesn't cross the blood brain barrier, then you wouldn't have to worry if it was non-psychedelic or not, but you'd still get exposure to the, the two A receptors in the periphery. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and how similar, so a lot of these drugs are very similar structurally to serotonin. Um, that's, that's why they interact with these serotonin receptors. Um, one of them that's very, very similar is that I want to talk about a little bit is uh, DMT. Um, so David, can you just tell us, tell everyone a, a little bit about serotonin and DMT? How, how similar are they structurally? So they, they're built around a two ring system called an indole. It's a six membered ring fused to a five membered ring with a nitrogen atom. And like most um, drugs that interact with uh, monomine uh, systems, there's an aromatic system two carbons away from a basic nitrogen. So there's an indole, this bicyclic indole, two carbons away from a basic nitrogen atom. Now, with di in dimethyltryptamine, basically all you have to add to that template is two uh, uh, one-carbon methyl groups to the nitrogen. So it's an NN dimethyl and tryptamine. Tryptamine is an indole with the two-carbon side chain in the amine. So an NN dimethyl. Serotonin is also got the indole core and has the two carbon side chain, but instead of having methyl groups, it just has an NH2. So it's a primary amino group. And in addition, it has a hydroxy group attached to the five position. So DMT doesn't have any oxygen attached over in the indole ring and it's a tertiary amine, which makes it more lipophilic and more easily to penetrate the central nervous system. Mm -hmm. So chemically um, they have the similar core but uh, serotonin is a primary amine, DMT is a tertiary amine, and serotonin also has this aromatic hydroxyl sticking off in the five position. Mm -hmm. And so you said you were the one who synthesized the DMT for, for Rick Strassman's studies where he was giving uh, human patients IV DMT? Right. How did, uh, how did that relationship start? Um, I was actually invited to a meeting at the Esalen Institute in uh, Big Sur, California, um, I was uh, one of only two academics that were there. Rick Strassman was probably the other one. And then we had all the the, the grand hoobahs of the psychedelic genre there. Stan Groff and Ralph Metzner and you, name, you, name, you can go down the list. They were all there. And the goal of the meeting was to sort of formulate a strategy um, to um, prevent MDMA from becoming scheduled. Now, we had two meetings, one in the the fall and one in the spring. When was this? Sorry. It was in the, the fall of 84. 84. Okay. In the spring of 85, but in the fall of 84. 
And Rick Strassman, because we were both academics, we kind of hung around together. I was aware of a paper that he'd written uh, called, called Adverse Effects of Psychedelics. It was a review paper that came out, I think, in 84, where he said that the incidence of adverse effects with psychedelics was actually very, very low in, in indicating the safety of psychedelics in general. And so we were talking, and um, it was funny because we we're walking along, and of course, Esalen is a kind of a new age place. And uh, we're walking along, and I and Rick and I were making a joke about how many healers there were, because these places all had shamanic healers and med meditative healers and sound healers and people doing every kind of technique for producing some kind of healing, whatever. And Rick commented to me, there's more healers here than you can shake a fucking stick at. And we both laughed. But anyway, uh, what we talked about was no one was doing any clinical work with psychedelics. I said, mm -hmm. well, Rick, I said, I'm a chemist, but you're a psychiatrist. You're at a psychiatrist and psychiatry department at the University of New Mexico. You could study these clinically if you wanted to. The problem was there was no money to do it. But he thought, well, he'd always been interested in DMT as an endogenous molecule and uh, had studied it some in earlier years. And so he said, you think I could? I said, well, sure you could. So we met, we had a couple of meetings with Daniel Friedman. Daniel Friedman was one of the early LSD researchers when he was at Chicago. And he was the acting head of the active chair, act, the acting head of uh, psychiatry at, I believe, UCLA. And uh, we met with him and he counseled Rick. He said, you know, do a study. I'll, I'll find some, I'll try to find some people that would support you. And there actually was a, the Scottish Rite Foundation, I think, su supplied some funds. And he said, but don't try to do any therapy or anything like that. That's too controversial. Just look at markers, look at blood pressure and heart rate and measure mm -hmm. blood plasma markers and prolactin and things like that. And so there was a fellow there who was the chairman of the psychiatry department. I think his name was Uhlenhuth, if I remember correctly. And he had moved there because his wife couldn't tolerate the weather. She had a lot of allergies. And so he'd moved to New Mexico where the air was kind of more pristine to get away from where he was. So he had a big reputation. So he worked with Rick to help design the study. And then Rick came to me and he said, you know, what if I get all this stuff done and everything's approved and I've got a source of funding out, but then I can't get the DMT. Mm. I had made the, so I'd made the MDMA for Doblin in 1985. And so um, by the time Rick came back to me and said, you know, so we, we met in 84, 85, he came back a year or two later and he said, well, I can't get anybody to make the DMT. Could you make it? And since I had made the, the MDMA for Doblin and the MDMA synthesis was the first time I'd worked with FDA people and FDA regulators. They'd sort of give me some counsel. This is what you need to do. These are the things you need to watch out for. You need to have a record of all the reagents you use and the, the lot numbers and yada, 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 and all that. So Rick said, could you make the DMT? Because nobody would do it. And it was a controlled substance. I think it was a control. Yeah, it was a controlled substance by then. And so I said, well, I made the MDMA. And so, sure, I could do it. It's a simple synthesis. Mm -hmm. So I worked again with the FDA people and then and made it for him. Mm -hmm. And then he did a study with the DMT. Well, so, you know, you know, this is 84, 85. Obviously, people like you knew what DMT was. DMT was known to specialists, at least at this time. But I don't think it was very wide. Like, beyond that, it was probably pretty unheard of. So did, did Rick already know about DMT? And, and why was it that he um, used DMT? Why wasn't he keen on doing psilocybin or some other some other drug? 
he had developed the hypothesis that endogenous DMT, that DMT was produced endogenously. He still has promoted that idea that it's produced endogenously and might be related to the symptoms of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And so the Scottish Rite Foundation, who I believe provides some of his funding, they were uh, set up to fund research uh, in schizophrenia. So that was his initial idea was if it produces schizophrenia, maybe if we just give it intravenously. And there had been some earlier papers showing that it was psychoactive. So he has said, well, you know, let's give it and, and see what it looks like. What are the symptoms? Does it look like schizophrenia whatever? So I think that was the motivation for working with, with DMT, the idea he had that it was an endogenous psychotogen. And um, so when, when did he actually do those studies and what are the cliff notes in terms of what he found and what he measured? Well, he, he published a couple of papers in Archives of General Psychiatry, I believe, in the early 93, 94, something like that. Um, and uh, in addition to seeing modest increases in blood pressure and heart rate, the people at the higher doses uh, has ha saw these aliens. Uh, you may have heard about all this. And so he wrote a book called DMT, the Spirit Molecule where these people had discussed, you know, when they took these high doses of DMT, they were transported to an alien landscape and they saw these alien beings and creatures, DMT elves, whatever. And Terrence McKenna had talked about this. Terrence McKenna, of course, was an early smoker of DMT and had talked a lot about the DMT elves and the DMT entities, et cetera. But Strassman, as far as I know, was really interested more in the possibility that DMT could be produced in people with schizophrenia and mental illness and that that was producing the symptoms. Hmm. And so, so this idea, I mean, it's, it's a very intriguing idea. It would imply that, um, you know, there's, there's some level of endogenous DMT production in the brain, um, either all the time, um, or it gets released at specific under specific circumstances or in, you know, under certain pathological conditions. Um, is there much evidence for this? What do we actually know today about you know any evidence that there's detectable DMT in the brain at levels that would make it relevant for some of these things? There are detectable levels of DMT in the brain. If you use HPLC, LC mass spec, you can detect it. Um, I actually wrote a review article. I was invited to speak at the uh, breaking convention conference in um, in London some years ago. And uh, they wanted me to talk about DMT as an endogenous molecule. I said, well, I don't believe it really is. He said, that's why we want you to come. And so I gave a talk about it and present all the evidence and said, there's not enough there. There's not enough there. He got a biochemist and a couple of other people um, to provide data to suggest that, you know, if they strangled rats, for example, the levels of DMT in the rat brains went up. So he said, well, maybe when people are dying, maybe the near-death experience is DMT. But when you strangle rats, every, everything goes up. They have a tremendous flood of all kinds of transmitters in the brain because their brain's dying and, you know, it's the, the trauma and stress are releasing it. Um, they, they're, still, uh, they're still a group of people that talk about DMT as an endogenous molecule that's produced in uh, significant amounts. <clears throat> but uh, I really don't, I don't subscribe to the idea that that, that happens. Um, there are many other things that I've pointed out, things if someone's under stress, things like endorphins are produced, and endorphins are more potent than DMT um, and can mm -hmm. produce um, weird psychiatric effects and, and mental effects. So I, I actually don't believe there's any evidence for it, but 
uh, he and uh, and um, and Steve. Um, there's a there's a Barker. Barker. Yeah, Steve Barker, and he's in uh, Louisiana, and um, and then there's another biochemist I think in Michigan, and they provided data where <clears throat> they've claimed that you know there's enough produced and it could be concentrated. Nick Cozy said, well, it could be concentrated in the uh, vesicles and could cause you know the release and. But it's it's really, in my opinion, this is a house of cards. Um, it's it's really it's acute hypothesis. You think when somebody's dying and they have a near death experience and have these visions that it could be a flood of DMT. But I just don't I just don't buy into that at all. <clears throat> I don't think the evidence is very strong. Um, there are just a few people that really are pushing this point of view. But it's it's a cute theory. People like it. Mm-hmm. Why? Um, so. You know, we kind of touched on earlier, um, Charles, through some of your work on inflammation. You know, you pointed out that psilocin and DMT, even though they're they're very similar chemically, they have very different effects um, in your inflammation model. Um, obviously, one of the other things that characterizes DMT that people always talk about is just the the potency and the vividness of the subjective effects, um, together with the fact that it's so short lasting. Um, even you know, it's you know, it's very close to psilocin in terms of chemical structure, but you know, it lasts for a few minutes as opposed to a, a several hours long mushroom trip that you can get with uh, magic mushrooms. What is it? You know, do we know or understand why the subjective effects are so potent and and the uh, and the drug doesn't last that long in terms of the structure and how it's interacting with receptors and things like that? Yeah, I think a lot of that is just the pharmacology and the route of administration. Um, that DMT itself is not orally active, unlike psilocybin. Mm. Uh, psilocybin is a Zwitter ion that has that phosphate that stabilizes it. So it can be taken orally. And when you take psilocybin orally, I think the the length of time is really the absorption into into the circulatory system from the gut. Because if you, and I think some early imaging papers were done with intravenous psilocybin, and that was about a 20 minute trip with some of those. I think they were doing that in the David Nutt's lab for some of those early imaging studies. So it's not necessarily that the one drug lasts more than the other. It's really the route of administration. If you smoke it or inhale it, it's going to go directly into your circulatory system. And then it will be metabolized through monoamine oxidase largely. Um, but I for see. psilocybin, it's, it's, it's oral. It's, yeah. And that, that would, that would, that would make sense of why ayahuasca, which is just orally active DMT lasts yeah. much longer than mm-hmm. inhaled DMT. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The big several yeah. hours. The beta carlines and ayahuasca prevent monoamine oxidase from breaking the side chain down. In fact, I've argued that ayahuasca is basically just an orally active uh, psilocybin type molecule. This the, the effects are very similar. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, another, you know, sort of another interesting comparison is you've got you know DM, DMT, NN DMT, uh, which most people just refer to as plain DMT, and then you've got five methoxy DMT. So very similar chemically. Um, very intense experiences that people report with these two drugs. Um, usually they're inhaled, so they're both short acting, uh, but the content of the experience is very different. So what, what is what, what do we know about the differences between DMT and 5-MeO-DMT that account for their differences? There's a couple of pharmacological things right off the bat. The psychedelic effects presumably are mediated by activation of 5-HT2A receptors. But 5-methoxy-DMT in animal models and also in vitro 
has really powerful effects in stimulating the serotonin 1A receptor. Mm. And 1A receptors are also expressed on uh, the axons of, of the cortical pyramidal cells. So they actually have a different effect. Um, and we don't really understand that, but probably the 5-methoxy-DMT, the fact that it's so different is related to the fact that it's such a powerful 5-HT1A agonist. DMT doesn't have that much 5-HT1A agonist activity, but 5-methoxy-DMT is a really potent 5-HT1A agonist as well. Mm -hmm. And is that is that, um, is that something that distinguishes 5-MeO-DMT from most other psychedelics? Do most of them not interact with this receptor or do so much more weakly? Much more weakly, um, the phenethylamines, like mescaline, don't really activate it at all. It's mostly the tryptamines. Um, and there again, 5-methoxy-DMT is almost unique. Some people have called it the God molecule because, you know, you completely lose consciousness. And uh, whereas with DMT, it's more entertaining and visual. 5-methoxy-DMT mm -hmm. really shuts off uh, people's consciousness. Mm -hmm. And nobody, you know, we just, we're, we're too early in the study of these to really understand what it is. But it, if you look at a cortical pyramidal cell, the 5-HT2A receptors are on the apical dendrites and they activate the cells so they fire more easily, they increase the gain. 5-HT1A receptors, among other places, are located on the axons and they hyperpolarize. So they almost mm. counteract the effect on the pyramidal cells that you see when you activate the 2A receptors. But the 1A is also located in other places in the brain. So we really don't understand, I mean, you know, the brain is much more complex than we can possibly comprehend. And although we know a lot more than we used to, I think it's just there are subtle nuances. And also the idea that you have differences in signaling. A DMT activates the receptor and you, you probably generate a certain set of signals, you know, restin and, and G proteins. 5-methoxy-DMT activates the same receptors, but probably also direct targets different types of intracellular signaling molecules. So it's it's pretty i think it's more complex i see but but you know to a first uh, approximation if we know yeah. that 5-HT2A receptors are often concentrated in the apical dendrites um, of certain neurons in certain parts of the brain um, and you said 5-HT1A is often concentrated on the axons and has a hyperpolarizing effect right. um, we would expect drugs that hit the 1A and 2A receptor to have a very different pattern of activity that they elicit from one that primarily hits 2A but not 1A yeah right. i mean yeah. yeah, it's like for, for tryptamines, like, like like DMT and psilocin, it's about a one-to-one -one ratio in how it's interacting with the 2A to the 1A. But for 5-MeO-DMT, there's about a hundredfold selectivity for 1A over 2A. So it's a, it's a weak agonist to 2A and a really oh, wow. good at the 1A. So wow. it's, it's almost a selective 1A agonist with some 2A activity. Hmm. If you do animal experiments with 5-methoxy-DMT and one other, some other psychedelic, almost any other psychedelic, the animals respond to activation of the 5-HT2A receptor. But if you go into, um, say, rats and you give 5-methoxy-DMT, the primary salient cue that they pick up on is activation of the serotonin 1A receptor. So it's, it's really a difference in pharmacology there. Interesting. Um, so one of the, so that's a very different. Uh, that's an interesting difference in pharmacology. One of the other things that is is very interesting about five meo DMT to me, other than the experience itself, is um, and I've heard other people report this, but I'm not sure to what extent it's it's been formally studied. Um, but but I've had two separate experiences with five meo DMT in my life, and I, I will never forget the first one because I was told with confidence ahead of time by the 
by the person um, overseeing this that uh, 5-MeO-DMT was very likely to result in what he called reactivations. And he said that this would be um, uh, some kind of uh, experience similar to the drug experience long after the drug had worn out the next day, the day after, and so forth, where you would basically trip to some extent again, probably at night while you were sleeping. Um, and that this could happen for days or even weeks after, after the drug administration. And at the time, you know, I, I just sort of silently listened to this and, and I thought to myself, you know, I've never heard of anyone actually having an acid flashback or anything like that. I've never heard of this. I, I, I didn't, I didn't buy it. Um, but, I'll be damned if <laughs> just that didn't happen. Um, I would say for about two weeks, you know, every night I would wake up um, in the early morning hours and, and have, you know, probably an experience that was roughly 50 to 80% of what the actual drug experience was. Um, is that something that's been reported widely for 5-MeO-DMT and hasn't been studied at all? It's not something I've heard of. You may be a very suggestible personality. <laughs> well, no, but, it's, uh, it's, 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 I think it's been written about, and it's it's not uncommon from from what I understand. And um, so we had a recent publication that uh, was a, a hypothesis piece that was largely driven by Peter Hendricks' graduate student Haley Duran on the hypothesis that the five meo DMT experience and a therapeutic effect may be due to um, partial seizures in the temporal lobe of the brain because of the overlap of the symptomology between uh, complex partial seizures and the 5-MeO experience with those reactivations that are um, pretty much unique to 5-MeO, mm -hmm. very, very similar to um, uh, sort of recurrent kindled seizures mm -hmm. after a major seizure event. Interesting. Okay. So this, this has been reported, but no, no one's really done careful studies of this. No. And, and I've known people that have, that have used 5-methoxy-DMT, including myself, and that hasn't happened. Interesting. Yeah, it happened to me the first time, but not the second time at all. Um, interesting. Okay, so uh, I'm also just interested more generally in, um, so, so 5-meo-DMT is an example of a psychedelic um, that has strong interactions with uh, other receptors beyond the 5-HG2A receptor. Are there any other major psychedelics, psilocybin, LSD, and any of the, the big ones that people are studying most intensively right now that have, um, that have interactions with other re receptor systems that we think are going to be important for um, their effects or for potential therapeutic outcomes? So it's primarily the, the phenethylamines like mescaline, like DOI, DUM, DOB, 2CB, they primarily affect just 5-HT2 receptors, um, although there's some interesting data from another lab that is, has pointed towards uh, an additional receptor, but that's unclear what that could be. The tryptamines like psilocin, DIPT, 4-hydroxy-DIPT, they all will activate, bind to, um, and activate almost all serotonin receptors, where you have LSD, it's will bind to and produce activity at almost all serotonin receptors and other monoaminergic receptors like dopamine, um, adrenergic. So the, studying a drug like LSD makes it sometimes really difficult to interpret what those results are. Um, there is some evidence that other receptors like the 5-HT1A are feeding into some of the behavioral effects in rodent models. Um, 
In humans, I'm not sure if it's really been demonstrated that other receptors are feeding into the effects of either LSD or psilocybin or mescaline-like compounds. I don't think that work has been done. Um, so I guess building on the site, uh, you know, going back to this idea of functional selectivity, so you can have two drugs that each interact with the same receptor, but they do so in different ways. And, and so they yield, they can yield different or potentially very different effects. Um, in the context of what's going on currently in, in psychedelic medicine, there is this big push to try and find psychedelics that have therapeutic efficacy for psychiatric diseases, you know, similar to what we've seen with MDMA for PTSD, psilocybin for depression and so forth. But, you know, a lot of people are asking the question, can we uh, re-engineer some of these drugs so that they retain this therapeutic benefit, but we don't have to babysit someone for a five-hour psychedelic trip? Can we engineer out the psychedelic component, uh, but retain the therapeutic component? Um, what do you guys think about the how plausible it is that we will achieve that? And are there are there any good examples of anything like that um, in terms of uh, functional selectivity or some of these drugs? You know, able to activate, say, a five HD two A receptor in a way that doesn't yield psychoactive effects, but does retain some of those therapeutic effects. I think there, for for at least for anti-inflammatories, developing a non-psychedelic two A agonist to engage that still yet to be found pathway. I think that's, that's very feasible and something that we can do. Um, I know if it gets to the psychotherapy, um, that's, that's a little bit different on whether or not you could have a non-psychedelic psychedelic that would be an effective antidepressant. Um, I know my dad has some opinions on that. Yeah. I mean, it's not, that's not, there's not a simple answer to that. Um, if all it does is activate the serotonin-2A receptor, it's probably going to be a psychedelic. It's going to have to activate some other ancillary receptor that cancels out the 5-H2 effect, and maybe you'll get it. The thing that's um, – and and when people ask me, well, is, is that really an important thing? Because there are people who think, oh, we need to engineer the psychedelic effects out. And what my answer has been, well, you know, for somebody who has major depressive disorder, giving them a pill – that addresses the depression, that's like an SSRI. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you talk to people who have been in hospice and have had psychedelics or people who are um, dependent on different drugs, you say, well, did you really, would, wouldn't you like to have that taken out? And the people say, no, no, that was one of the most important experiences of my life. So I've seen inter interviews with people who had been given psilocybin-assisted therapy who were at end of life. And they're very powerful experiences where they 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 get a different view on their life. Um, they want to reconnect with the siblings and 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 friends that they become estranged with, and they just get a whole different perspective on the nature of death and dying. And they lose their fear of death. I don't think you can do that with a pill. And I think similarly, when you talk about alcohol use disorder or or, or not not necessarily spoken about alcohol use disorder, when people have been treated with psilocybin assisted therapy for that. They go back and they revisit, like, when did I start drinking? Why did I start drinking? What was my motivation for drinking? And they do a lot of real introspection, get insights into what caused them to start drinking and why they keep drinking. And then if they're successful, they stop. And I don't think you can do that with a pill. There's too much cognitive introspection that occurs for 
like and obsessive compulsive disorders probably the same way maybe eating disorders will turn out to be the same way i think for just major depressive disorder if you can come up with something that works better than an ssri and it and somehow involves activation of the 2a receptor that's great but i i'm i'm very agnostic in terms of whether you could make something that really would be classified as a psychedelic but wouldn't produce any effects and if you think about it the serotonin 2a receptor is localized on apical dendrites of these cortical parameter cells cortical parameter cells in the cortex those are the major computational units in the brain that's where everything comes together all your subcortical um, information your vi your vision your th imagination all kinds of things they converge on those cortical parameter cells if you ever see a picture of one they have all kinds of inhibitory and excitatory inputs and outputs that's the major computational unit. And so activation of serotonin 2A receptors depolarizes those membranes so they become more easily fired and increase the gain of those cells. How can you do that to the major computational unit in your brain without having some kind of a central effect? It'd be like taking a computer and somehow overclocking the, the, the CPU and then expecting it to work the same way as it did before. So I think it's kind of naive to think that it would have just the same effect as a psychedelic, but but wouldn't produce that kind of intoxication. Now, you might get something that activates the 2A receptor, which leads to therapeutic improvement, but maybe it, maybe it hits some other receptors, ancillary receptors, that will attenuate whatever the psychedelic effect is, but you'll still get the behavioral effect. So mm -hmm. I, that's, that's a reasonable way to go. But as far as taking the experience away from people who are in hospice and palliative care, or people who have substance use disorders, I think if you talk to those people almost to a to a person, they'll say, no, this is really valuable. It wouldn't have worked for me. I've really got a lot out of, you know, I've, I've seen these people talk about, you know, a, a, the first woman that was in the Charlie Grove study, it was a Hispanic woman. And she tried to get her husband in his study because he drank a lot and she, but he wouldn't go. And so she was talking to Michael Bogachutz, who was the principal investigator. And she said, um, yeah, my husband will come. He said, well, do you drink? She said, yeah. He said, well, let's see. He gave her the test and she she qualified for inclusion into his test. So she was, I saw her on camera talking about what happened. She said she realized when she took the psilocybin, um, and there's no therapy while you're taking the psilocybin. It's all beforehand and afterwards. She had on ear sh eye shades and earphones. She said, I realized what I was doing is I'd go to work, I'd come home, I was tired, I'd sit down, my kids would want attention, I'd push them away and I'd pour myself a drink and I would just drink and just ignore the kids. And she realized I was cheating my children of my presence as their mother. And that she stopped drinking. It was a profound insight she had. She says, now I come home, I have the kids, I bring them around, I hug them all, we talk about what they did in the daytime and everything. And I don't think you can do that with a pill. That just isn't going to happen with a, with a pill. It was it was the cognitive effect of this that really made her realize how much better her life and her parenting could be. Mm -hmm. What do you think, um, you know, pe people talk about now that the psychedelic Renaissance that we're in this new golden age. Um, do you think there's any risk that, um, or what do you think the biggest risks are that, that something interrupts this um, resurgence in research with these substances? I think there's enough um, momentum now that it'll be very tough to stop that. Even if there was some new recreational drug that started flooding the streets, they would focus on that. I think 
The psilocybin has been demonstrated to be effective for depression and anxiety and substance use disorders. MDMA has been shown to be effective. We expect MDMA to be approved probably this year later for treatment with PTSD. The therapeutic effects of these have now come to the fore. And I think any congressman who tried to, who tried to shut down research and access to those, I think it, it, he would get a lot of pushback. And many of the states, in, in North Carolina where I live, they had a bill that they put forward to the state legislature to appropriate four or five million dollars to set up a couple of trial programs with psilocybin and MDMA and have an oversight board. I mean, so the states themselves and state legislatures are recognizing that this may be a therapy that we need. Are you still um, working in Brian Roth's lab, David? Yeah, I do. Um, although I had a heart attack in 2019 and then COVID hit. And then I had a brain bleed. I fell, I was taking anticoagulant and I had a, a subdural hematoma. And so basically after the heart attack in, in February of 2019, um, I basically didn't go in the lab anymore. In fact, in fact, I'm supposed to go in the mo- tomorrow to help clean out some of my chemicals. So <laughs> I still dial into his group meetings. And if I can have some input, I will and just kind of see what's going on. But uh, no, my uh, work in the lab is basically stopped. I mostly consult. Um, mm-hmm. consulting for some companies that have been working with psychedelics, consult mm-hmm. on the chemistry. Um, I haven't had a chance to look into it, but I, I saw recently that they had some pretty major results they announced using uh, AlphaFold. Do you, did, were you able to see any of that research or follow along with that? Yeah, yeah that was really, really interesting. Yeah. And using, using the computational program to fold the receptor and do docking, um, they could prospectively identify a number of compounds with activity to 5-HT2A receptor, but when they went back historically, none of those compounds would fit. So I think by using that computational model with this receptor and with other receptors, I think it's gonna really open up some new doors in identifying additional chemotypes for the 2A and other receptors. It's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that AlphaFold program is really powerful. It's really powerful. And um, so, Charles, uh, w- what kind of questions are you guys working on in the lab to either build on the the anti-inflammatory results that that I saw you present at the conference, that chart that we looked at, or mm-hmm. that that haven't been published yet? What's what's going on, sort of on the cutting edge for you? Oh, so we we have um, been working uh, in collaboration with a colleague, uh, Dr. Kim Mix at, at Loyola University here in New Orleans on identifying additional potential diseases that could benefit from psychedelics. So we've been looking at a a model of rheumatoid arthritis and seeing some really interesting results there. We'll be presenting that at um, our uh, ISRP meeting here in New Orleans in a couple of weeks. But that is, um, we see differential effects of different psychedelics at, at multiple outcome measures in this mouse model of, of rheumatoid arthritis, again, underscoring that one psychedelic is not another psychedelic. In fact, psilocybin in, we've been testing uh, chronic low subbehavioral doses of three different psychedelics and psilocybin is the worst performing um, in almost all of the outcome measures, whereas the phenethylamine ones are better, which is different than what we see in the asthma model, where the psilocybin or psilocin is just as good as, as DOI is. Uh, so this is 
this is some, I think, pretty exciting proof of principle for uh, this is really the first demonstration of chronic low dosing in um, a model that treats the active symptoms. Yeah, I guess this speaks too to the the concept of of microdosing. So at least mm-hmm. with your inflammatory results, you're using super small doses. And and the fundamental biology here, Charles, like you mentioned earlier, is mm-hmm. that these GPCRs act as really good amplifiers, basically. So they often you can get strong biological effects with uh, very little activation of some of these receptors. So Mm-hmm. Um, is, is microdosing in general for psychedelics in your view, is it, do we know, or is it likely to be doing something, um, even in the brain and in terms of, of psychoactive effects at sub sub psychedelic doses? I think based on our, our data across several different animal models of inflammatory diseases, the amount of drug necessary to produce a sustained therapeutic effect would be considered a microdose. Uh, whether microdosing is effective for what people are microdosing for, like cognitive effects, mm-hmm. memory, I I don't think that it's it's the really the data is not out there that shows that it's it's having really any positive cognitive effects. Uh, but it could be that say somebody has some neuroinflammation that's affecting depression, um, that anti-inflammatory effects these very low doses could be could be playing. A role, so I I I don't discount microdosing um, completely. I think that at least at the potency that we're seeing for the inflammation, that those were probably therapeutic levels for some of these drugs. But for cognitive enhancement and memory, I'm not so keen on that. And in fact, LSD, which is one of the more commonly drug use drugs used for microdosing is one of the poorest anti-inflammatories that we found. You really have to be at the, those behavioral levels to see any anti-inflammatory effects. Mm-hmm. The clinical and- studies have not shown any effectiveness for microdosing uh, because they're normal people. And the thing that uh, that Chuck is talking about is in inflammation, it takes less yeah. of the drug. And uh, one of the things that we speculated about is that when the tissue is inflamed, the serotonin 2A receptors are upregulated and invoke a different signaling pathway mm. so that low doses can address the inflammation. But as far as people microdosing to feel good and feel happy and whatever, um, I think it's mostly placebo effect. Most people don't appreciate how powerful the placebo effect really is. Mm-hmm. And um <clears throat> Uh, David, if we go back to like the the early days, you know, you were talking about your time at Esalen and and all of the people who were there. Like when you think back to those days compared to like where we're at now, like are you surprised? Are you surprised that we've gotten to where we are right now? Um, when you think back uh, of at what you've lived through? Oh yeah, yeah, I'm very much surprised. Um, you know, <clears throat> when I proposed the Hefter Institute back in not late in the early '90s. Um, Ann Shulgin and Sasha were friends of mine, and Ann said, Dave, the government will never let you do research in psychedelics. I said, why? She says, because when people take them, they see the, you know, the games that the government's playing, and da-da-da-da-da. I said, well, I just don't believe that. I think it's just a question of qualified people who haven't been in the field, and there hasn't been money to fund it, you know? And uh, so I, I got a lot of pushback from people in the beginning. And when we started the Hefter Institute, I saw a woman a few years ago who her husband, she and her husband were one of the early donors to Hefter. They gave $10,000. He was a real estate developer, I think, in San Diego. And I saw her at a reception a few years ago, and I says, 
do you remember way back when and you guys gave me $10,000? And she said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I said, do you remember what your husband said? And she looked at me funny. He, he said, nobody can ever know where this money came from. And she started laughing. She said, isn't that something? It's changed so much. I mean, I was, you know, I, I, you know, I never thought this would happen. Not, not, not in my lifetime. Some a woman asked me some years ago, she said, what do you see as the future for all this? And I said, well, someday, probably long after I'm dead, you'll be having a midlife crisis and you'll go in and you'll see your doctor and he'll send you down to a shaman slash psychiatrist at the corner who will give you a session with a, with a psychedelic and give you a new perspective on your life. And she says, oh my God, do you think you'll be dead by then? I said, probably, but if the vector's pointing in the right direction, that'll be okay. But, you know, I never imagined it just, it just took off. It's just, there's so much interest. Mm-hmm. And I started, yeah, I started saving, I save reprints. I send, I see a reprint I send to him. I started saving reprints on my computer and I can't keep up anymore. I have 4,000 reprints on psychedelics in my computer now. And there's a dozen I haven't even logged in yet. Mm-hmm. Um. I talked to uh, I talked to Dennis McKenna uh, a few months ago on the podcast. When you were at Esalen in in the eighties and and around that time period, did you ever meet Terrence McKenna? Um, I met him once, um, and I was actually at someone's house prior to taking off, and we were going to go to Esalen. And Terrence came in, and he was early. I was early. I was staying with someone, so I was there. And he came and sat down, and I looked at him. I said, "You know, Terrence." <clears throat> The thing that's puzzling to me is, you know, he had the theory that uh, the mushrooms were sort of an alien intelligence that came down. And I think the thing that's and that's really strange to me is that these alien mushroom intelligences have come down and made their home in shit because they're proper. <laughs> he broke out laughing. He broke out laughing. And then uh, in the big room in, in uh, Esland, he rolled a bunch of joints and there were four of us or five of us sitting in a circle. And he was there at the head. He was rolling his joints up and God knows what he put in. I think he ground, he powdered some hashish and put into it. So he was passing around and people were just taking a token. I was sitting on his left. One, I guess, I guess I was next to him on the left. And there went around the other side and I took one toke. and whatever he was smoking was really dynamite. And so he passed it around a second time. And it came to me and I said, I'm going to pass. He looked at me really funny. And then it passed around again. And everybody then said, that's enough. That's enough. He says, what a bunch of babies. And in that, you know, the way Terrence talked and he had rolled four joints, he proceeded to smoke the other three. And, you know, nobody, I mean, his, his ability to smoke dope was legendary. Um, so, uh, what do you guys think is, have you followed at all the, um, so there's, there's current, there's a lot of interesting work being done right now and a little bit of controversy and debate over how exactly this piece of the puzzle works. And that's the relationship between classic psychedelics and, and and some of the other drugs that are uh, adjacent to them and neuroplasticity. Um, so a lot of people talk about, 2A receptor agonists being able to promote hyperplasticity. Then you've got sort of Gould Dolan and, and people over there talking about metaplasticity. And they're, they're not really promoting hyperplasticity. They're changing how easily plasticity can be induced by things like experience. Have you guys 
been been following like that area of the field at all? And, and, and what do you make about the idea that um, psychedelics are promoting hyperplasticity in the brain? Yeah, I, I, we, we found that um, over 10 years ago in our lab with uh, LSD in the rat brain and fly brains. And um, so there is a lot of plasticity that is induced. I think uh, was Brian Roth all the way back in 2009 has, has that paper. So it's been known for a long time that psychedelics do induce plasticity, but so do a lot of other things like methamphetamine and cocaine. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that we've been looking at in my lab is the potential functional plasticity rather than the structural plasticity. And that's some un- unpublished data that we have that um, 100 days in our rat model after we after we give a single injection of psilocybin, we see these profound changes in the in the functional plasticity of of the medial prefrontal cortex. We see a um, a hypopolarization of the mean resting potential. We see significantly increased firing rates. So the the neurons in the MPFC in our models are firing more. They're more easily fired, and this is three some months after a single dose. So we went in with this with the hypothesis, well, let's investigate if it is structural plasticity, we would expect to see genes for synapses to be increased, PSD95, SB2A, synapsin. Um, And when we looked in several areas of the hippocampus and the medial prefrontal cortex, we just didn't see any evidence of that. So my current theory is that there is this increase in structural plasticity that other groups and we have seen. Um, it's induced by ketamine, um, induced by psilocybin. But the difference is we think that it prunes back to a baseline level after a few weeks. Uh, whereas in the case of ketamine, the behavior reverts back to the depressive-like behavior. But for psilocybin and other psychedelics, there's an epigenetic change which is occurring to upregulate certain ion channels to make them more conductant. So you're pruning back to the same number of synapses, but the ones that are left are more efficient. And so what we're doing now is we are looking at different channel subunits at these time points, looking for epigenetic factors to see if maybe there is this sort of window of hyperplasticity that then prunes back down to more functional plasticity. Mm-hmm. And to help people understand what you're talking about here, can you just define explicitly what's the difference between structural and functional plasticity? So structural would be like the number of dendritic spines. So a lot of people have been giving LSD to neurons in a dish or other psychedelics and just counting how many connections there are between the axon and the dendrite. And there's a certain density. Um, so what we've seen is that there's a nice robust of 15 to 20% increase in the actual physical number of connections between neurons and specific circuits, uh, both in a Petri dish and in the real uh, living brain. Um, Those effects, there have been a couple people who have looked sort of long-term in a couple different models, Um, but the persistence of those if you think about it, it takes a lot of energy to maintain 20% more connections in your brain. And mm-hmm. it, it's, you want to go back to homeostasis. So it makes a little bit more sense to me that you might want to make those new connections in this critical 
window of plasticity, but then prune things back um, in the case of psychedelics to where now you've strengthened the relevant, the relevant connections with ion channels that are more conductant. So you're, you're making those, those connections that are there more efficient. Yeah. And so you're, you're, you're maintaining this antidepressant like state over the long term. Mm-hmm. Whereas for something like ketamine, it doesn't, maybe that doesn't happen. I see. Yeah. I mean, r- roughly speaking, it kind of sounds like Gould Dolan's idea, which is that <clears throat> some of these psychedelics are inducing states of metaplasticity and it's akin to reopening, you know, the critical periods that, that happen normally naturally across development where you've you've got these windows where things are heightened and you actually make more synapses than you need but then there's this sort of pruning process to get rid of the extraneous ones right at at, at a rough level i think we we are in agreement at, at, at that that i think there's this sort of maybe two to four week period where um there are more synapses and we have shown in some of our early work that we published i think four years ago that the environment that we put a rat in the first week after we give it psilocybin really profoundly shapes what that antidepressant anxiolytic effect is five weeks later. That if we, if we take a rat, we give it psilocybin, and we expose it to a stressor within that first week that we believe it develops better coping skills. So uh, when we test it in an elevated plus maze, for example, for anti-anxiety effects, there's a profound anxiolytic effect of a psychedelic when it's stressed and then rescued from that stress. It just learns to, um, I think, better, uh, it, it it learns better coping skills that if it just rests and doesn't try to escape, then it will get rescued. Whereas if we don't give it that stressor over the first week, if we wait to the second week or the third week, we don't have any anxiolytic effect that we can detect from from that psychedelic five weeks. So it, there is something about the immediate week or so afterwards that um, tunes the brain to allow it to somehow, I think, mature into a, a more healthy state. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, what were you saying there about differences between psilocybin and ketamine? So ketamine, um, when we do them in a side-by-side comparison, both are believed to induce the plasticity through convergent mechanism uh, through mTOR and BDNF. Mm-hmm. Um, but the effects of ketamine in humans and in animal models wear off after about two weeks. Mm-hmm. And we have seen that. Other people have seen it. In in human uh, therapy, you have to go back for re- tr- repeat treatments for ketamine. They don't last for four years, as in the case of some studies with psilocybin have shown. Um so there's a fundamental difference in something beyond just this convergent glutamatergic mechanism inducing BDNF and plasticity, where psychedelics have the capacity to maintain whatever that therapeutic effect is, whereas for ketamine, you're back to a baseline depressed state within a week or two. And so yeah. that's some of what we're trying to do in the lab now is look at these longer, later time points and identify what those changes are. I see that. Yeah, I've, I've or I've heard that before. Um, that that ketamine's antidepressant-like effects are are not as robust and, and don't last as long as as things like psilocybin. Um, so, so is that a pretty reproducible finding? Right. Yes. Yeah, several laboratories have have shown that ketamine wears off. Very is quick. that like? I've I've seen I live in Seattle, but I've seen these in a number of cities. But I see these ketamine clinics all over the place now. What I mean, are you guys seeing that too? Does the is there any? Do you have any concern about how common those 
types of clinics are becoming? Um, it is it is concerning because it's really off label use for a lot of ketamine. Um, it's just somebody who has a strip mall clinic come in, give them their injections, uh, and I think one of the one of the reasons for that was that there was really kind of no medical billing code and insurance reimbursement. Um, but I, the the I think they just they had a medical billing code a few months ago that was released, um, and insurance is now starting to reimburse more, and that's going to I think have more qualified physicians who have been through that training to use. Um, the only FDA approved use of, of ketamine now is Spravato, which is the, the nasal spray uh, for, for depression. Everything else is really experimental or off-label and it's unregulated. What do you guys think are some of the... Um what are some of the most exciting things that you think we're, we're going to learn answers to about psychedelics, their mechani- mechanism of action, especially in terms of how they work in the brain? What do you think we're going to learn in the next you know, one, two, three years uh, that we don't know today? I hope I figure out how they're anti-inflammatory. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working on that for almost 15 years. Yeah. The, the insights we're going to get, I mean, in uh, in dep- not just in depression, but in uh, substance use disorders and uh, anxiety and all these, they're going to be powerful tools as we understand how they can be used. They're going to be powerful therapeutics, but they're going to give insight. Whenever you get a new, like chlorpromazine, when it was in first introduced in 1952, nobody knew how it worked. And then later on, they find out, oh, what well, blocks dopamine D2 receptors. So that led to this whole you know, the whole field of, you know, rip, you know, knock off antipsychotics. I think once we understand what's actually going on to alleviate depression or whatever it is, it's mm-hmm. going to give us insight into new cures, new directions for cures, just a better understanding of the brain, which, you know, we have a really primitive understanding of the brain as it is, even though we think we, we know a lot. It's, it's really a huge, huge, you know, biocomputer that we don't understand very well. And so these are going to be tools the stuff they're doing looking at uh, uh, functional connectivity and uh, stuff that Robin Card Harris was doing at Imperial College, looking at brain dynamics, these are things nobody was really looking at very much before. So we're going to get a lot of insight into how the brain works and how it how it fails and how you can re- restore it. So it's, it's hard to say any specific thing, but just a general increase in our awareness and knowledge about how the brain works and new therapies and how the therapies, how the psychedelics can lead to these uh, therapeutic improvements. I think that's just, it's, it's a whole big field. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I think you mentioned earlier briefly that I think this year we're expecting to hear from the FDA about, you know, about um, the MDMA assisted psychotherapy that Rick Doblin has done through MAPS. Is that sort of the next big milestone in terms of the next big thing that might happen that really pushes us to the next level with some of these therapies? Um, and are there any other, is there anything even close um, to at the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy in terms of in terms of becoming a, an FDA-recognized therapy? I, I think psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression will probably follow in 2025. Um, Compass uh, has done big clinical trials. They've got breakthrough therapy approval from the FDA. Um, the pro, you know, the problem with all these is scalability and cost. 
Mm-hmm. You know, with MDMA for PTSD, it's usually two to three sessions. And even if they're six-hour sessions, and if you've got people there, um, the, the the cost of the room, the cost of the, the sitters, the medication is not even, it's not significant in the cost. Same thing for psilocybin. You know, a psilocybin session produced at scale probably would cost you $100 for the psilocybin or maybe even $50 for the psilocybin. But having two competent professionals there, the clinical rental for the day. I mean, Steve Ross told me when they were doing their first studies with psilocybin in, in the cancer patients, I said, what do you think the cost has been per patient? And he said, yeah, we've estimated $25,000 a patient. Hmm. Well, insurance companies are not going to be going for $25,000 a patient unless you can demonstrate like this person has been, it's cost us $10,000 a year for drugs, but if we give them psilocybin therapy, they're cured and we don't have to do it forever. So it's there's going to have to be some 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 kind of figuring to see how these things can be scaled and be economical and have insurance reimbursement because normal people can't afford to go in and give somebody ten thousand or fifteen thousand dollars and say you know I'm so depressed and nothing's working. So um, I think the scalability is is a big issue, but I think psilocybin is not far behind. Uh, the MDMA trials started before psilocybin trials started and. Uh, so and Compass has done big trials, phase three trials. So I think that's going to be next on the uh, next on the watch list. Mm-hmm. And of course, once you get approval for a psilocybin for depression or treatment-resistant depression, USON has also got. I think uh, uh, they're also moving toward that. Once you get approval for one, doctors can use it off-label. So with all these smaller studies. Once it's demonstrated to be safe, like for alcohol use disorder, smoking use disorder, um, end of life, uh, OCD, eating, if all these met, turn out, uh, they'll be able to train people will be able to use them once there's a demonstrated uh, therapeutic signal. And so we see that for depression and end of life existential distress. So I think once psilocybin is approved, you'll see a lot of these other indications and so maybe somebody who's in hospice, you don't have to pay for the clinical room. You just have to have a sitter there during the day when they do the trip. So it might be feasible for those kinds of things pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't see PT, um, MDMA as being useful for very much. I know people have looked at MDMA for end-of-life distress and MDA for alcoholism, but I haven't seen any signals that it's really going to work for that. But uh, for PTSD, it seems to work great. So scalability, that's the thing everybody's looking at. How do we get insurance company reimbursement? Yeah. So um, I don't want to take too much more of you guys' time. Um, you know, I'll just ask you a couple of final questions here. But, um, you know, Charles, like, what are you look looking forward to for the rest of your career? And, and, and like, you know, can you give us the broad strokes of like, what's it been like to go from the kid going into dad's lab to becoming a psychedelic scientist yourself? And then just like cut, sort of getting to this point where, where each of you are at. It's, it's, it's been really surreal for me. Um, uh, when I started my lab up 20 years ago, there were maybe half a dozen people in the world who studied psychedelics. And it, as he said, I I used to do literature searches and I'd pull up maybe two or three every couple of weeks would pop up with serotonin 2A or something. And now I get 40 to 60 a week from people. I, I just can't keep up with it anymore. So it's it's been tremendous to see it grow 
so much as it has and, and the interest and, and the legitimacy of the field that I don't have to really, I don't get strange looks when I tell people I study psychedelics anymore. Um, and I can tell people I'm, I'm out of the closet. I, I study psychedelics. Um, but what I'm, what I'm really looking forward to is I know I'm on both fronts with the anti-inflammatory and antidepressant, you know, just what are the mechanisms How solving those? Because they're completely new, completely novel. How are they anti-inflammatory? How are they antidepressant? And gaining gaining really exciting biological insight that can someday be translated to clinical use and therapies to help people and just better the world. That's that's what I'm looking forward to, a, a better world. Yeah, and David, I think most parents, when they tell their children not to get involved in drugs um, and they find out that uh, they've defied, <laughs> defied them, uh, they get very upset. But uh, I, I wonder if you've had a, a different experience. Yeah, well, my, I'm sure I've said my father because he never knew what I was doing for my PhD. Um, you know, really, it was more <clears throat> the wisdom I had had. I'd realized so many people had, had been interested in this field and had not succeeded because there wasn't any grant money. Yeah. And for Chuck to be in this field, you know, he 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 sent me one of his early grants. It was to study the mechanism, I think, of LSD. And I says, nobody gives a shit about the mechanism of LSD. I said, if you want to use LSD as a tool to study something else, then you could probably do that. But I said, you know, it's going to be the kiss of death for as far as getting funding. So he, again, was very lucky. And just as an example, this anti-inflammatory stuff, after Katrina wiped out his lab in New Orleans, um, he contacted me because a lot of those samples that he had shown for anti-inflammatory activity were samples that he got from me because I had cabbaged a bunch of them when I retired. And um, he said, is there anything that's scheduled that's not Schedule 1 that's a 5-HT2A agonist? And there was only one. It was DOI. It was RDOI. And I'd worked out a patented method for making RNS-DOI when I was a graduate student, and I had a bottle of it. I sent it to him. So the whole anti-inflammatory stuff, if he'd said, if he'd said, Dad, you know, are there any uh, psychedelics that are not controlled substances? Because he was waiting on his license. Yeah. If I'd said, no, there aren't any, I mean, his career might have taken a different tack altogether. So there's been a lot of luck involved. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. pleasantly surprised he's been able to keep this field going. I joke to people that we were starting the nickel serotonin dynasty. Um, but, uh, you know, really, um, and, and really, it was quite propitious that he got this background in genetics. And I was a chemist, and I and then I did a postdoc in pharmacology, so I knew a lot of chemistry, and I could make things, and I could put them in animals and behave and observe them. But his going into a field that allowed him to have a genetics as an expertise has really facilitated his ability to do things now, because that's exactly what's required to understand what's going on going in and being able to, you know, do a genomic analysis and proteomic analysis and all of these things that are techniques that genetics people know that he knows has given him a unique capacity that I don't have. And so, you know, in, in a sense, I'm almost jealous of his success, if you will, because I wish I could do some of the things that he can do. Um, but, uh, you know, he's doing them at least. And, you know, when I retired in 2012 and moved down here, I built a wood shop down in my base of my house. I was going to make Native American wooden Native American flutes because I play those as a hobby. It's just sitting down there mostly with dust on everything because when all this started cooking up, people started wanting me to give Zoom lectures and go and give talks on psychedelics. Because if you wanted somebody to give a talk on psychedelics, 
there was only like one or two people in the United States that you could get to do it. And I was one of them. And so I was always glad to do it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. And the fact that I counseled him not to do it and he didn't take my advice was a really good thing. But he, right, was, I think- he was always kind of stubborn. <laughs> Uh, well, I think that that's a great place to end it. Um, and I know it's a little bit later for you guys. So thanks again for, for taking the time. Uh, really appreciate it. This was, this was a fun format too, with both of you, uh, on at the same time. So I appreciate you guys, uh, uh, throwing that out there, uh, David and Charles Nichols. Uh, thank you guys. Have a good one. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen and it's a handheld pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters, to get $50 off your Lumen device today.